There is an uncomfortable truth that we often try to hide in the West, and that truth is mortality. We don't want to think about our own mortality, but we also don't want to think about the mortality of the ones we love. And even when death comes, we try to make things more comfortable. We adorn the body and try to make it look like the, be- the person is just asleep. We, we do so many different things. We don't always make it easy for people to engage in healthy mourning, in grief. The British novelist Julian Barnes tried to capture the loneliness in his life of what he called grief work. After 30 years of marriage, his wife Pat died with a brain tumor. And I understand his description. Barnes was struck by how many of his closest friends didn't know how to talk honestly about his grief. He said some friends are as scared of grief as they are of death. They avoid you as if they fear infection. One friend advised him to get a dog. Some other friends suggested they go on a long vacation. Perhaps the craziest, barely a week after his wife's funeral, another friend cheerily asked, So what are you up to? Are you taking walking holidays? He then went on to describe those who couldn't even bear themselves to bring up her name. He called them the silent ones. He said, I remembered a dinner conversation in a restaurant with three married friends. He said they had known her for years. These were close friends. He said, I mentioned her name. No one picked it up. I did it again. And again, nothing. Perhaps the third time I was deliberately trying to provoke. Afraid to touch her name, they denied her thrice. And I thought the worst of them for it. He imagined in his head the, the silent ones saying by their silence, your grief is an embarrassment. We're just waiting for it to pass. And by the way, you're less interesting without her. There's so many different ways that we have of trying to hide our pain and grief. It's not an easy task in our culture. And so we come to today's text. And it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. There are some, and not just casual readers, there are biblical scholars who look at the passage we'll look at today and wonder, why is this in the Bible? People look at this passage and say, what do we have to learn from this? What can this possibly tell us? Why does this story take up an entire chapter in the book of Genesis? And I will admit, it is a bit of an unusual story. It is out of the norm for the scriptures. You see, Sarah, folks, Sarah is the only woman 
in all of Scripture whose age is given. Sarah's the only one in Scripture whose age and death are given. Now, that's not an unusual thing, and we'll see that in a little bit. So why is the text here, and why should we study it? And we're not studying it just because I said, Abraham, on the journey of faith, so I'm going to read every passage that has to deal with Abraham. Does it feel a little odd to look at somebody's grief? Well, if that's what makes you uncomfortable, we're not being morbid and we're not being prime when we look. Remember, God decided that he was going to give us this passage of Scripture. And this passage of Scripture takes a hard look at Abraham as he faced a time to mourn. And God said, this is important enough for my people to know this story. So please stand as we hear the word of the Lord. Genesis 23, 1 through 20. I will be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, and I'll explain why in just a bit. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep from her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, it is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephraim, Ephraim, and Abraham weighed out for Ephraim the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephraim in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, 
the cave with the, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in it the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for burying place by the Hittites. A blessed reading of his word. You may be seated. In our text, Abraham had to face the challenge of Sarah's death. We looked at his greatest test in the offering of Isaac a couple of weeks ago. But now he faces one of the next huge tests that people in this world deal with. The death of the one he loved. And ahead of each of us, it's one of the greatest challenges faced in life. When people we love leave this world. Now how can we face the challenge of a loved one's passing? We are people of faith. We are people who trust. But how do we deal with it? How do we find healing? Well, we're going to take a look at some truths that are suggested in our text that we need to understand. And I begin with the first. And I really need to hear this with both ears in your heart. We are not exempt from grief as people of faith. We don't get a get out of grief card. We don't get a card that will keep us from having pain or sorrow in our lives because we know Christ. And unfortunately, that's kind of a popularized view of what It means to be a Christian. Your troubles will be very few, if any, if you just have enough faith. But looking at the book of Genesis, we find an extremely honest take when it deals with death. First of all, when we look at this, the book of Genesis, extremely honest when it speaks of death, Think about where death enters into the picture. God tells Adam and Eve in the second chapter of the book of Genesis, you can eat from any tree you want to, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, death comes. And sure enough, they ate and became aware. They were no longer innocent. They became aware of their nakedness. They became aware of their sin, their shame. And from Genesis throughout much of the Word of God, there is a close link between death and sin. Paul wrote to the Romans, Well, wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But even when you get to the genealogies, you know that part in the Old Testament that you, that you skip over? Because most people skip over the genealogies. You really shouldn't. Because they often have something to tell. So you've got to dig to find it sometimes. But there is an element in the genealogy of Genesis that becomes very powerful if we pay attention. And I kind of have given you a way to see that 
and hopefully you catch it. So I'm not going to read all of Genesis 5, but give you a few verses to see. Genesis 5, 5, that's all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. His age and death, remember that with Sarah. 5, 8, thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Genesis 5, 14, thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. Did you catch the pattern continuing throughout all of Genesis 5, that that genealogy, one after another, and he died? What do you think the message that Moses is trying to get across to us here? All die. Everyone dies. And that's about as honest as you can get this pattern And now we come to a text that drives the truth home. Abraham, the great man of faith, who was willing to sacrifice his son, believing that God would somehow raise him from the dead, had to face the fact that his beloved Sarah was dead. Fully and finally gone. When she dies, God does not raise her. Sarah has died. And he had to realize what this loss would be. Folks, the intellectual knowledge of death will come to us all does not negate the emotion deep inside that denies that truth. We want to think at an emotional level we're going to be here forever. I remember when I was a kid and I would look at people who were 30 years old, I thought, man, they're old. And 40-year-old people were really old. And my grandparents were ancient. You know what? 65 doesn't look that old to me now. The, the reality is, somehow we just kind of think we've got Forever. Ernest Becker was a cultural anthropologist who wrote a book entitled The Denial of Death, which won the 1974 Pulitzer Prize. And it dealt with the topic that few people want to consider or talk about, their own mortality and death. Now, the paradox that Becker brings up, although the topic is often considered a social taboo, everyone on this earth will have to confront it sooner or later. And Becker argued that human beings are actually confronting it and dealing with it from the moment they're born. They do it subconsciously. They do it unconsciously from birth. We start hearing the stories about be strong, be heroic, do all that you need to do because we cannot really comprehend our own death. Becker suggested the fact that we will die one day is too terrible a thought to live with, and thus men never think about their own death seriously. Now, I'm not in complete agreement with Becker, because Becker started dismissing all the different ways people deal with death, and he said religion was one of those false ways of dealing with death. 
And we don't need religion anymore. Because essentially we are modern people and we can explain what a rainbow is. And we can explain why hurricanes come. And we can explain all this kind of stuff. But even though his understanding, I think, was very muted by this idea of what true faith was, I think he does have a point. It does ring true. We want to put it out of our minds as much as possible. I remember when my father's mother, mom and aunt, died. And my dad went to the the funeral home to make sure the preparations were done correctly. Mom and aunt was raised in a holiness tradition. I don't know if you know what that means, but holiness ladies don't get their hair cut. They wear long skirts. They don't wear jewelry, which they see as a worldly thing, and they don't wear makeup. And my father got to the funeral home, and when he came back, he was irate. They put makeup on my grandmother. Because they wanted her to look pretty. They wanted her to look. And my dad said, you have got a few minutes to get this off. And don't put it back. So, we don't particularly deal with it. Think about all the funerals you've went to and how how many times people gather around and, and they take a viewing of the body, they shake hands, they hug, and then they go over somewhere and they start telling jokes and start... Because we don't want to deal with death. And I need you to understand something. Natalie was speaking, again, a tradition that many of us know. Don't cry. Be strong. I've heard, I've heard people tell five and six-year-old kids, do not cry. Grandma wouldn't want you to. I don't often usurp adult parental advice. And I'm going to confess this to you. And I've already confessed it to the Lord. I have often caught that child away from any adults and say, it's okay. Your mom and daddy need to cry too. Folks, the reality is the hope of resurrection does not negate the reality that death comes and brings with it grief, even for the child of God. And you may have all the faith in the world that the person you're saying goodbye to knows Jesus Christ, that they are with the Lord, and that's a hope we hold on to, that their suffering is gone, and they are whole now, and that does give us strength. But it does not deny the reality the person we love is gone. I hear people say, Grandma's looking down at me. I don't want my grandma looking at me. I want my grandmother to be focused on God. I don't want Rachel looking over me. The Bible says there are no tears in heaven, so I know she can't be. He did what? We don't, we're uncomfortable. 
We need to understand that grief is nothing to be ashamed of. It is not unchristian to say I'm hurting. I'm hurting. I've told this story before, but when we had Rachel's, the viewing over here at at Bradford O'Keefe, the night we started to go in, I said a quick prayer to God. And I said, Lord, please don't let anybody say anything stupid. My wife is the most gracious person I've ever met. And if somebody gives me one of these lines, God needed an angel for the choir. I don't want to punch somebody when I'm wandering Rachel. When I first told that, that story, Missy Rustin began laughing her head off. And I said, why are you laughing? I mean, I thought it was pretty funny, but not, not that funny. She said that night Jay had it. laryngitis. He couldn't speak, so, so God was protecting him. If we acknowledge that we are not free from grief, what do we do with that knowledge? That somewhere down the line, and most of us are old enough that we have faced this, whether we've wanted to or not, somewhere down the line, grief is coming. What do we do with that? Our next truth shows us. The grief that comes must be faced. The grief that comes must be faced. We can't ignore it. We can't try to smother it. If we try to be strong, we only prolong it. When you look at Abraham, his grief was not avoided. F.B. Meyer, a great man of God, in the late 19th century into the early 20th century, said this is the first time we hear, we read of Abraham weeping. We do not read that he wept when he crossed the Euphrates and left for ever home and kindred. There is no record of his tears when tidings came to him that his nephew Lot was carried into captivity. He does not seem to have bedewed his pathway to Mount Moriah with the tears of his heart. But now that Sarah is lying dead before him, the fountains of his grief are broken up. Folks, how could he not have grieved? Now, I know that numbers are not always really clear in Genesis, but Abraham and Sarah have been married somewhere around 100 years. And we know that it would have been 62 years since they arrived in Canaan when they left Ur. Well, when they left Ur, actually. And the relationship has been summed up rather beautifully. Uh, R. Kent Hughes points out, Sarah's been... Abraham's soulmate on his epic journey from Ur to Canaan and then down to Egypt and back again as they sojourned in and around the promised land. Sarah was at hand for every pinnacle of Abraham's life. Those high moments, the repeated covenant promises, the defeat of the invading kings, uh, Abraham's victorious return when he was greeted by Melchizedek, king of Salem, the covenant that was given, uh, their renamings from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah, uh, his pr- to prayer for Sodom 
and of course the offering of Isaac. But he also points out Sarah was also there for all of Abraham's failures. Where she was twice told, you've got to tell my, you're my sister to keep me alive. And of course we know the whole issue with Hagar and Isaiah, Ishmael, their, her own failures. But in the end, above it all, we are told in Scripture, in her old age, she was mother of laughter. Isaac, his name, laughter. Sarah was the one who fulfilled for Abraham a passage in Ecclesiastes, the first part of verse 12. I'm reading from the New Living Translation because I love A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. She was the one who stood with Abraham through his journey. And we must not lose fact that the word of God says Sarah was a woman of faith, just like Abraham. Listen to Hebrews 11.11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Yes, her first reaction, she's going to be mom, she laughs. But then Hebrews says she believed. Just like Abraham. With such a loss, Abraham's grief was genuine and unavoidable. This passage begins with Sarah died. And throughout the passage, seven different times, there are variations of the words bury and dead. And when the scripture says that Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her, these were not crocodile tears, they were real. The wife of his youth is now gone. And guess what? This is the first time the word weep is used in scripture. God waits till this moment to talk about anybody crying. And again, we don't hear about tears at the fall of man. We don't hear about tears during the flood. We don't hear about the tears when God scattered the people of Babel. The Holy Spirit waits till this moment in time to point to this weeping. And it's a strong word for weeping too. It's not an occasional leaking of a tear. When a giant of a spiritual man is separated from a godly woman. Now I read from the ESV because it uses a really very literal translation that the NIV does not. The NIV simply says, Abraham asked, give me a place where I can bury my dead. You may have noticed that twice the ESV uses a very unusual phrase. First, may I bury my dead out of my sight. Now that sounds weird. Is he being harsh? Is he being hard? I don't want to think about her. I want to get her away. No, and this is not particularly nice to think about, folks. But the reality is, I don't want to watch my wife decay. Give me a place where I can put her. 
It's not so much he's worried that somebody will disturb her bones. Give me a place where I can put her, where I don't have to have the extra grief of watching what happens. Abraham says, help me with my grief. Abraham had a vital faith in God, but don't try to read into what Abraham did, the joy of the New Testament. Remember when we read 1 Corinthians? That this is the reason. Christ has risen from the dead. And all of the things we believe are true. Abraham didn't have that. He didn't even have the, the promise of David when he wrote in Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a real grief, a real struggle. And the struggle of trying to be strong for others can affect the way we handle our own personal grief. I've had the honor of preaching at some funerals here. For people you love, for people we loved. And you may remember Every time I do this, I try to tell people, our tears are all right. You don't have to hide from the grief. You don't have to hide from the pain. John Calvin, who a lot of people think of as this really cold, thoughtful, intellectual guy, had two particular losses that affected him throughout much of his life. His infant son, Jacques, and his wife, Idolette. Now, he originally didn't want to get married. But a friend of him, Martin Bucher, uh, encouraged him to marry Idolette, who was a widow of an Anabaptist man. Who was at, and she was actually a few years older than Calvin. And this does sound very cold and harsh. He finally convinced Calvin it would be a good idea because if he had a wife, she could take care of the house and therefore he could work more on his writing and teaching and so forth. But they did come to love each other. Their son was born and just lived for a couple of weeks. Idolette, seven years later, passed away. She had never completely gotten over the loss of her son. And Calvin was writing to a couple of different friends about his experience to a man by the name of Pharaoh. He actually calls himself half a man. He said that he does what he can to keep himself from being overwhelmed with grief. To his friend Verrett, he said, although the death of my wife has been exceedingly painful to me, yet I subdue my grief as well as I can. Friends are also earnest in their duty to me. I confess that they profit me in themselves less than could be wished. Yet I can scarcely say how much I am supported by their attentions. And I thank you. But you know well how tender or rather soft my mind is. Had not a powerful self-control therefrom been given to me, I could not have borne up so long. So when we allow ourselves to be weak, 
we need to understand we need to embrace the Scripture's truth in order to experience grief in a healthy manner. Death in this world cannot be avoided. Stuart Briscoe points out somewhere around 15% of Americans die without making a wheel. And he says maybe it's because we just don't want to face death. We try to hold back. I love this and don't laugh too much, okay? Just set myself up. Great efforts are made to hold back the ravages of aging, diminished physical strength, deteriorating beauty, lapses of memory, loss of hearing and hair, and all kinds of other nasty things. But novelist equipment, hair pieces, plastic surgery, notwithstanding the issue of mortality has to be faced. Said a surgeon friend of mine recent, reminded me recently it has been proven conclusively that one, life is 100% fatal. So we need to remember the Bible doesn't hide from this. The Bible doesn't stick it off in a corner. It's right there showing us over and over again people who lost ones they loved. But if we allow ourselves to experience grief in the face of the death, we, we realize I don't have a pass card here, and I realize I'm in a moment of grief in my life. How do we understand? Allowing ourselves to experience grief in, in the face of death is not a lack of faith. And I to prove that, I just have to turn to one passage of Scripture. John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. And he wept at the tomb of a friend. A friend he knew he was going to raise from the dead. So why did he weep? I've heard preachers want to protect Jesus. He wept because they didn't have faith in him. I think he cried because a friend had to face death. Yeah, because guess what? After he was raised from the dead, eventually Lazarus died again. Jesus had loss in his life. A friend dies and he weeps. So if you're going to accuse me of having no faith when I weep over those I love, be very careful. How do we accept grief as people of faith? Our next truth, our final truth, gives the answer. The promises of God must be remembered. The promises of God must be remembered. And when we look at this story, it, I love this account. Again, it's, it's a, a very interesting and enlightening because this is not the way we do things now. But Abraham's encounter with Ephraim was, not, was more than an ancient eastern haggling. A lot of people will point out, there's some haggling going on here. You know, trying to top people down of prices or top prices up. Now, make no mistake about it, Ephraim was haggling with Abraham. Abraham first shows up to the Hittites and says, give me a place I can bury my dead, I'll pay you for it. And they say, oh, you're a prince among us. You can choose any tomb you want. Abraham did not want to bury his wife in a paganly carved tomb. He says, well, take me. He actually had a place of mine. Take me to Ephron. He has a cave, Machpelah, and I'll buy it. 
And when he approaches Ephron and says, let me buy the cave, the response of Ephron can be taken that he's just a kind man. He objects at the idea of the purchase and he offers the cave and the field as a gift. I give it to you. I give it to you. Bury your dead. I give it. That just sounds so kind. And if it were just here, I don't want you to have to pay for it. It may have been genuine kindness. But most, including your pastor, believe that hey, Ephron was not exactly being honest here. He's haggling. And it was not unusual in the Middle East. You start off, oh, you're my friend. Here, let's do, here's. And then very quickly moves. Think about what this man says. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I'll give it to you. Bear your dead. What did he add to the equation? A field. Abraham hadn't said anything about a field. I want a cave. I give you the field and the cave. He ups Andy a little bit. And Abraham says, actually, he looks at Ephraim and says, okay, I'll take the field too, but to give me a price. Accept it from me, the price of the field. Abraham doesn't want to bother with haggling. So Ephron says, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of lamb worth 400 shekels. What's that between friends? I give it to you. Bury your dead. Okay, folks, right there we know Ephron is not this kind, benevolent guy. 400 shekels. Now, first of all, coins were not being used at that point. So a shekel is a weight of silver. And he says he, he used the weights that the merchants of, of the people of the Hittite would say, folks, we're talking about six and a quarter pounds of silver. This is extortion. David paid 50 shekels to purchase the temple site at Aruna. 50 Jeremiah, later on, hundreds of years later, Jeremiah 32.9, paid 17 shekels for a field in Anathoth. He has just said, now, probably what he's expecting, 400 shekels, what's it between us? And he expects Abraham probably to say, okay, how about 100? And the haggling would begin. And all of a sudden, Abraham's weighing out the silver and gives it to him. And the deal is done. Ephraim may also have hoped that Abraham would say, forget it, I'll go somewhere else. Because in that day and age, allowing somebody to bury that wasn't part of the clan was frowned upon. But Abraham says, I'll do it. But why does Abraham do it? Why is he willing to do this? Why did he ask to purchase property in the first place? Well, the the people of Israel throughout the centuries have noticed this entire chapter dedicated to the death and burial of Sarah. It's not just about a grave. 
Abraham had been promised all the land for his descendants. And when he buys that cave and field, he's saying, this is home. The normal practice would have been for him to wrap her body up as best they can, take her back to Ur. Do you remember later in Genesis how Joseph and Jacob both had their bones taken from Egypt, buried in Canaan? That would have been the normal practice. But Abraham is saying, Ur is not home for me. Canaan is. And I am committed. I am going to live in the home that God is giving me and my people. It was an act of faith. One more sign. I am committed to following the promise of God. And later on in Genesis we find out it must have been a pretty good sized cave because Abraham was buried there. So was Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah. It became a family pot. Why? Because Abraham trusted God. To see the hope that is ours as children of God as a conduit for healing in the times of grief. Holding on to the truth of who God is and what he's done for us. It's not going to immediately take the pain away. But it is the way healing begins for us. Yeah, it's very common for me in a funeral to, to say, you know that old expression, time heals all wounds? Folks, time doesn't heal anything. God can bring healing. God can give you the strength to find the way to get up in the morning and get on with life. To see the hope of ours, Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, and listen carefully to what he says. First Thessalonians 4.13 We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul isn't saying, I don't want you to grieve at all. He knows the pain that you're going to feel when someone you love has died. He's not saying... Put on a stiff upper lip and think bright, happy thoughts. He says, don't, don't forget that you have hope. And the hope we have is based on the resurrection of the Lord. Again, this is why we read from 1 Corinthians 15. When Paul says, if Christ is not dead, you're still in your sins. Uh, the people who died have gone before are just gone. We are fools. We have made a liar of ourselves. We are most people, of all people, most pitied. But he says, Christ is raised from the dead. Therefore, we are not in our sins. Those in faith who've got on before us have not perished. We are not fools. We still must face the loss that comes into our lives. But we can do so with hope that can usher in God's healing. Peter wrote to a congregation that was in great pain. First Peter 1, 3-6 through 6, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though for now a little while, if necessary you have been grieved from various trials. We have an imperishable truth. Peter was saying, there is grief and joy that are possible within the life of the child of God. But faith looks beyond what we can see and trust that those promises that come to us through Jesus are real. And we can find peace. We do not have to face grief without hope. But to have hope, there's one thing we must do. Let us learn to trust in the God who alone can give us a peace in the midst of the storms of grief. Peace that passes understanding. We remember the truths he's given us in his word. We ask him, Help us to hold on to the truth because, God, I'm just tired and I'm worn and I need your strength. We seek the peace that passes understanding. And we look at brothers and sisters in the Lord who can walk alongside of us. Today, if you find yourself still struggling with grief over the loss of one you love, or any of the other myriad losses that we face in life, please understand the scripture isn't saying you're weak. It's not saying you don't have faith. It points to grief that is part of life. Again, F.B. Meyer. There are some who chide tears as unmanly, unsubmission, unsubmissive, unchristian. With such, the spirit of the gospel and the Bible has little sympathy. Religion does not make, come to make us unnatural and inhuman, but to purify and ennoble all those natural emotions with which our manifold nature is endowed. Jesus wept. Peter wept. The Ephesian converts wept on the neck of the apostle, whose faith they thought they would never see again. Jesus stands by each mourner saying, Weep, my child, weep. For I, too, have wept. And I love this. Tears are the burning, relieve the burning brain as a shower of the electric clouds. Tears discharge the insupportable agony of the heart as an overflow lessens the pressure of the flood against the dam. Tears are the material out of which heaven weaves its brightest rainbows. Tears are transmuted into the jewels of better life as the wounds in the oyster turn to pearls. Brothers and sisters, please remember, none of us are exempt from grief and the sorrows of life. Remember that we must face those times of sorrow. We can't simply pretend they're not there. And remember that the promises of God can strengthen and given us peace as we do. There is no shame 
in our tears. So in the days and weeks and months and years ahead of us, as one day we too again will have to face the time of warning, know that we do not do it alone. Our God is with us and will strengthen us. We will each face a time to mourn. But we will also face the time of joy and restoration. Because our God is a God who is able. Would you please bow your heads before the Lord? And this is not kind of serving that demands a formal invitation. Because it affects every person in this room. Because every one of us will face loss. It's a reminder that hopefully can carry you in that time. That the word of God stands true. And even people of great faith have known what it means to suffer loss. You might not ever expected Brother Danny to preach a funeral service in in a worship service. But in some ways that's what it is. And today what I hope we're bearing is this idea that somehow as believers we don't have to have pain. That we somehow just need to be strong and pretend everything's okay. That we don't need the word of God to strengthen us because we're all right. Let's let God be the God of even our grief. Grief. 